0: I hope you've been enjoying the Summer Nights edition of On The Odd. As I had previously stated, this summer I am releasing all 45 episodes that were thought of as lost. Every day I get about a dozen emails to share stories, personal accounts, or things that are just simply strange. If you would like to be a part of the future of On The Odd, please email me at mark, M-E-R-K, at ontheod.com. I would love to hear from you. Please enjoy this episode. From the Paranormal. The extraordinary, from the weird to the wonderful, this is On The Odd. Today I have a very special guest. His name is Mark Edgerton. He is an author from the UK who became interested in the paranormal in his teens, which led him down a path of exploring history and diving deeper with the help of his uncle, who is a member of the world-famous The Ghost Club, which is a paranormal investigation and research organization Founded in London in 1862. Please welcome to the show, Mark Edgerton. How are you, Mark?
1: I'm fine, thank you, Mark.
0: Um, you you definitely have a very fascinating um, collection of stories. I, I think the way that you touch upon a lot of what you do has uh, you're a very focused person. Um, I heard a number of interviews you've uh, you've done, and um, yeah, I really I, I really appreciate you taking the time to come onto on the God and speak with me about all of this.
1: Yeah, no problem. I'm happy to answer any questions yeah. that you or your listeners might want to hear.
0: I do want to just mention uh, your book, which is The Haunted History of Huntingtonshire. Yes, yeah. And uh, that's available on Amazon, and I'm going to put a link to it, of course, in the show notes and on my website. Um, yeah. It's a great-looking book. Um, you have um, a ghostly figure in front of um, – and what is, what is the structure that is on the cover of the book?
1: The structure that's on the cover is actually a place – house and i think it's uh, featured on uh, the tv show paranormal lockdown i think it's being shown in the the states around now it was filmed uh, here in i was asked to get involved with it uh, if you know the structure of that show um katrina weidman hmm. groff going to uh, a build yeah, yeah
0: I, i've seen it before
1: lady yeah yeah um. so basically um the, the house you see on the front is, is, is Hinchingbrook House. It's the, the rear of the property, mm-hmm. and uh, the, the white lady is seen there on numerous occasions, but no certain who she is. So uh, I actually went to school in that building. So oh, did you? Um, I know the building. Yeah, the school there. It's a school now and it has been a school since
0: 1970.
1: Wow. Um... Was, uh, I did my last year of my education there in.
0: So it was um, a grade school.
1: Yeah, it's uh, well, in the UK, it's what we call a comprehensive school. Um, So it's basically the sort of school that you would go to from the age of 12. Um, The actual house itself uh, is you you only taught in the house when you in your final year. I was about 17 years old uh, Mm. when I spent my last year in that house. Uh, but it's got a long, haunted history. There's, the property is 1,000 years old, so uh, it gives you an idea of uh, the history that it's got there.
0: Yeah, that's really not something that we have here very often in the States. Um, I mean, our structures are just a few centuries old usually um, at the most, especially here. I, I live on Long Island, so you do you do have structures that go back to the um, maybe 400 years at most. Yeah.
1: But 1,000 yeah. years,
0: yeah. I mean, that's very impressive, um, yeah. and it, it must it's, hold an, a certain energy.
1: Yeah, it started life as a church, and uh, around about 1170, um, a a prioress asked if she could build a priory there. It was just a wooden church, and it was falling to bits. And so they built a priory in the late 12th century, and it remained as a priory until King Henry VIII over here dissolved the monasteries, um, which basically he, he wanted a divorce from Catherine of Aragon, and the pope in Italy wouldn't allow him to have one. And so uh, he decided to condemn the church and start his own church, which is the Church of England. So all these monastical buildings, you know, priories, churches, cathedrals and that all basically became prime pieces of real estate. And um, it was bought up by uh, a family called the Cromwell family, um, which is famous for Oliver Cromwell. It wasn't actually Oliver never lived there, but Oliver Cromwell, who was involved in the English Civil War. Wow. Uh, so the place has got a lot of history attached to it
0: that sounds like a fascinating place um, I can see why you chose it for the cover um, now in having to do with paranormal um, events and um, just having an interest in this is this something that goes back to your childhood
1: yes yes um, I had a paranormal experience myself uh, in 1976 when I was 15 and to cut a long story short, I basically saw what I believed to be a ghost and uh, it wasn't sort of thunder and lightning or the normal conditions you associate with ghosts. It was a summer afternoon in a 16th century farmhouse uh, and I saw what I believed to be a monk wow. and uh, I went home and told my parents what had happened. It, it was only sort of for a few seconds and uh, when i told my parents they said don't be so stupid um, but luckily <laughs> my mother had her sister and she was married to a guy called trevor kenwood and trevor was a member of uh, the world famous ghost club um, which actually was formed around 1855 um, and it was formed at cambridge um, trinity college in cambridge um, i'm about 18 miles from the city of cambridge so and, um,
0: Trevor Kenward, Kenward was uh, your uncle.
1: Yes, yes. He married my mother's sister.
0: So you, um, what kind of conversations would you have with him? Because you, this is somebody you really could approach with, your, with what you experienced. And he's going to listen to you, and he's going to look for any type of inconsistencies. He's, yes. he's probably the best guy because he's going yeah. to be able to tell right away whether yeah. you're making this up or, yeah. this is, or you have a legitimate look in your eye.
1: Absolutely. And uh, he was used to uh, interviewing people that claimed to see ghosts. And my, sort of, um, my mother spoke on the phone to her sister and said, oh, Mark thought he saw a ghost. And she was sort of said, oh, I'll tell Trevor. And uh, they lived quite some distance from me at the time. Uh, but she used to visit uh, the family here where I live. And obviously he used to come with her. And so he sat down and uh, it just so happened about two weeks after the incident, he actually was was here and he sat me in a room and interviewed me. And I mean, I knew what I'd seen. I knew that I wasn't mentally ill or drunk or anything like that. Sure. And he believed me. Um, so I I became fascinated, really, from then on. And um, I wasn't allowed to join the Ghost Club. It was a very select organization. Uh, you, couldn't, you couldn't join it. You had to be invited. That's
0: interesting. Um,
1: That's interesting. Yeah, and most of the people were from Cambridge University. So they were all very well-educated men. If you go back to the roots of the Ghost Club, um, as I said, it goes back to 1855, and it was founded in 1862. It was actually founded in Cambridge uh trinity college which is sort of world famous college and sort of former members of the ghost club include people like charles dickens uh sir arthur conan doyle who wrote uh, the sherlock holmes and the hound of the baskervilles and and all that so these were these were pretty pretty learned men and they all had one thing in common to me that had an experience like i had that defied you know, logical scientific explanation
0: no I, their title simplifies, I think, what they were doing. Um, I mean they basically and maybe they wanted that, maybe they wanted to just kind of put a very general name to the name of the club ghost club yeah, yeah. but um I mean we're talking about a research organization of some very not only powerful people but very intelligent well educated people
1: yeah, absolutely, um, and I think that this subject is something which. You never really fully understand it and then for sure until you've had an experience as I had. And they'd obviously had similar experiences. They were, you know, things when you've actually seen it, you know, they say seeing is believing. But when you've had something happen, you know, right before you and you've experienced it, then you have a slightly different take. To somebody, you know, even if your very best friend who you trust with your life tells you he's seen a ghost, there's always a little bit of doubt. But when you actually experience something yourself like that, um, you know, to me, it was like, well, what the hell was that? I want to understand that, you know, and uh,
0: you feel the need to understand it. Right. Because you're kind of questioning. I think some people question their own personal sanity when they see something because. Ten minutes ago, they were making fun of it, and then it appears in front of them, and they're like, all right, um, am I a nut, or is this real?
1: Yeah, and I think, to be honest, that always happens, which is why, with a sort of paranormal, especially seeing an apparition, I particularly dislike the term ghost hunting, because I've been sort of doing this, I haven't done it absolutely for over 40 years, I haven't done it every month for 40 years, I had some breaks when my children were small, Mm -hmm. but your chances of actually seeing a ghost or or I prefer to call it an apparition is minuscule. So when you go ghost hunting, if you do experience paranormal activity, it's more likely to be of the poltergeist variety where there's noises or, or things move rather than actually see the apparition of somebody that resembles a human being or or looks like a human being. Mm -hmm. So for that reason, I, I prefer to, um, to to not use the term ghost or ghost hunting, um, because there's a lot of debate over what a ghost actually is. Um, And obviously over the the 40 years that I've been involved with it, um, my sort of take is I'm always open. There's no experts in this field. Um, I've got a lot of experience, but I wouldn't regard myself as an expert.
0: I think a Uh, lot of people would would, um, debate you on that because they, they feel as though they are experts and i agree with you there's this is a completely open open ended um conversation yo know, you cannot have a um a, you cannot go into parapsychology and expect to find the answer at the end
1: no no uh, and you know scientists really struggle with it because they're used to testing something in sort of um uh Scientific conditions, and this isn 't something you can just flick your fingers, your fingers, click your fingers, and say, "Hey, you know Mr. Ghost, please come up here so we can study you and there 's the the thought of you know it 's generally accepted that the ghost is the, the spirit or the soul or the life energy of a deceased person. Now, there are many other explanations for ghosts as well, and which is another reason why uh, I've just spoken to you and told you that, you know, I've had 40 plus years of doing this. I've only ever seen that one apparition in 1976. Mm. I've never seen another. I've experienced lots of paranormal activity, which I would describe more as poltergeist activity as opposed to seeing ghosts.
0: Now, it seems to me that you're you're one of these people, thankfully, who's a self-debunker. So if you were to see something or if you see something, uh, evidence brought to you yeah you know you know, you're level headed so it's like you're 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 probably going to look for every solution outside of the realm of what it could i was
1: be. i was very very lucky um in that um when my um when when my uncle um basically took me under his wing he basically as uh, introduced me to a gentleman called Peter Underwood, who I don't know if you've heard of him at all, but Peter Underwood, he passed away in 2014, I think it was. Uh, He was a very eminent uh, person in this particular field, and he was the president of the Ghost Club for, I think, 32 years. And Peter Underwood turned around and said to me, he said, Mark, don't try to prove that ghosts exist. Always approach it from the angle of trying to prove that they don't. So if I experience phenomena, what I'm trying to do is come up with a logical scientific explanation. And 90% of the time you can do that.
0: Wow. Well, you know, I didn't know much about the ghost club, to be honest with you. I don't know if it's because it's overseas um, or it's just a really kind of, it's such an ex- exclusive group that they haven't even really, released so much information about themselves. Yeah. But one of the things that I came across, which I found fascinating, is that the club basically debunked um, the Davenport brothers, which was one of these big hoaxes, um, a spirit cabinet. And um, I, I I have a lot of respect for people and organizations that call out the fakery. Um, Houdini, yeah. um, You know, Harry Houdini or Erlich Weiss, yeah. however you want to call yes. him. He was, um, you know, calling people out. He you know, had a cash prize at the end of the uh, you know, at the day, you know, if you could bring to him any evidence of the afterlife, yeah, um, being able to just trigger it. Now, yeah. a lot of people, I think, they look at these things and they go, "Well, there's your proof. Nobody can yeah. forward." But I don't think it works like that. Personally, I think that these things are unpredictable. I don't think we can, just like you know, a strike of lightning can't be predicted. I don't believe that we can predict um, paranormal existence or paranormal phenomena.
1: I think actually I would I would just question that slightly. One of the things that I've found from my experience when I often get contacted by people and they say to me, oh, I think I've got a ghost in our house or something's happening. Normally, they're not seeing anything. They're having things happening, which I said to you before of the poltergeist variety. And what the first thing I say to them is I say, keep a ghost diary every time something unusual happens, record the time, the date. The room it happened in and a brief description and if you do that after 6 12 18 months you can sometimes see a picture emerging and you can actually predict when activity is most likely to occur because with a lot of these hauntings and you can call them residual um, which is a term that often gets um, um, confused and confusion attached to it you can get something called an anniversary haunting where You know, the phenomena only happens on this certain day of the year. And sometimes when you keep um, a ghost diary, uh, if you've got something going on strange in your house, It takes a good six months before you start to see things emerging. But I've often done that and actually been able to predict when, you know, something's going to happen purely by when it's happened in the past and by keeping a record. I find that when I interview people who say that they've witnessed phenomena or seen phenomena, they know exactly what happened and can give you the the sort of highest levels of detail. But when you actually turn around to them and say, well, what time did it happen and what was the date? Oh, I'm not sure. I didn't. I didn't make a note of that. I think it was, you know, two months ago, Thursday or whatever. Right, right. And that can be so important. So um, you know, ghost star is a, a very simple idea. Yeah. And again, that, that was something that Peter Underwood taught me.
0: I've kept a um, a journal or diary. However old I am, I changed what I call them. But um, ever since I was eight, right, and I'm 45 yeah. now, I have. Yeah, I have a lot of journals, right. Yeah. So, um, and I almost look at them and I'm like, Oh, what am I doing with these? You know? Yeah. But, um, you know, there was a period of time where I was having some type of, I refer to it as light paranormal phenomena yeah. in a house that we had purchased where, um, and later we learned that, um, this really terrible death had happened before we lived there. And yeah. in my regular, before I discovered, came across that this death happened, I, you know, I would Always have type of weird stuff. I go back and uh for three years we were there and it's just, you know, it's a lot of craziness that happened. Nothing like, you know, Amityville horror or anything like that. Yeah. Yeah. But it is it was certainly something that when I reflect back and I look at my own words when I was not aware. Yeah. It's it's kind of wacky. You know stuff like falling and like breaking when I'm out of the room, or yeah. I thought I locked that, or um, the doorbell just kind of rings, or the doorbell does, just doesn't work anymore. There, there was like a lot of just weird stuff that I think that a lot of people maybe tack up, tack up to, you know, oh, no big deal, no big a coincidence, yeah. you know. And yeah. I like what you're saying, though. I, I think people should because we're terrible. We have terrible memories, and as as people, um, we think we have great memories. But we're really we forget details almost immediately. Very often, not everyone. But
1: yeah, as I said, generally speaking, if you meet somebody and they've had something happen like that, mm-hmm. and they can tell you exactly what happened in really great detail, but you can say to them, "Well, when was this? And what was the date? And what time did it happen?" And uh, you know, they're 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 not so sure, or they're, oh, I think it was about. Nine ish at night, you know, right. stuff like that. And so if you keep a diary, you've got those things to hand and you can start to see this picture over the months building up. And very often you can find um, that you can see patterns emerging. And, and therefore, it's
0: free. It's free to do. Yeah,
1: <laughs> yeah. And you can you can actually say, well, you know, looking at this uh, every time um, it seems to be nearly always on a Thursday evening. So if you're going to have a paranormal investigator come in to look at it, obviously a Thursday evening is going to be, you know, a time when, you know, the likelihood is greater. Yeah. Uh, Because paranormal investigating is a little bit like fishing. You can go and sit by the river and you can fish one day and you can catch nothing and you can go back the next day, same time, same place. You can catch all sorts of things. And I found the paranormal very much like that. And so I often liken it to fishing.
0: Yeah, it, it's definitely an interesting um, way to put it. Um, it's um, so you are currently not a member of the Ghost Club, is that correct?
1: No, no. The um, to be quite honest, the the Ghost Club um, has changed dramatically. Um, as I said, it was quite this um, very private um, you know, university-educated people. You had to be university-educated, or, or, or you were invited to join the ghost club you couldn't just join right, right. the ghost club now is based in london if you go online and and uh, you'll find a website for it and anybody can join the ghost club i think it's about 35 pounds english pounds a year and uh, you can go and listen to their meetings and stuff um, but i know that peter underwood uh, he was the uh, president for 30 odd years and he sort of Moved himself away because he didn't like this sort of commercial aspect. The Ghost sure. Club is the oldest cyclical research organization in the world. Uh, as I said, it, its it roots started in 1855 and it, it formally founded in 1862 in Cambridge. Uh, But it's now based in London, and uh, it's a very different uh, organization um, to what existed, you know, originally. And a lot of people just join it, you know, because it's the oldest cyclical research organization in the world. Um, And, you know, there were some people that weren't really that interested in the paranormal. They just liked the fact that they were members of this club and they'd sit in gentlemen's clubs in in London and listen Mm. to lectures and stuff like that and drink brandy and smoke cigars,
0: I think. <laughs> and, you know, it is important though to support these, you know, um these things because, you know, they are part of history. Um yes. if it's something that we appreciate and we want, you know, their archives to stay around, you know, I would imagine yeah. that it would be a worthwhile thing to join. Um but speaking of that and the way things are changing, what do you think about because you did mention the ghost hunting aspect of things and I also agree. I think calling it hunting is, is wacky. And um whenever I watch those shows, which I haven't watched in a very long time, like ghost hunters. Um, I, I liken to what they're doing to when a kid goes to an aquarium and taps on the glass. Yeah. yeah. Um, the last thing you want is a big shark breaking through, you know, yeah. it's, you really, I personally feel as though these people are trying to get a reaction when they very well might get a reaction that they really don't want.
1: Yeah. I mean, to be honest, um, You'll see on these paranormal shows, they make a lot of these lone vigils where they sit in a supposedly haunted house by themselves with a a camera for for a companion and -hmm. nobody else. I mean, Peter Underwood taught me, he said, you never, ever do a lone vigil. He said, because you don't know what you're dealing with. If you get into any sort of problems, you've got nobody there to help you. And he said, most importantly, if anything does happen, there's no one else there to witness it other than you. And so if you go away and say to me, oh, this has happened, you know, I saw the whatever, um, you know, people will always say there's nothing to 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 verify it and give it credibility. So um, obviously it makes good TV. Um,
0: sure. That's the key. You know, I, it's like you gotta sell the commercials. Yeah,
1: I can say from doing paranormal investigations for 40 odd years, this is sort of ballpark figures off the top of my head. of the time, nothing happens at all. 40% of the time, you probably get possible poltergeist-type activity, knocks and bangs, but they're not conclusive. It's the 10%, really, that, uh, you know, the the things that you you really want to happen. Um, So, you know, if you're going somewhere and you're only going to get something of interest 10% of the time, that doesn't make good television, so I think, you know, there's a little bit of artistic license with these, uh, TV shows. Um, there's normally a, a disclaimer at the end of the credits, which says, um, for entertainment purposes only. Right. right. And, uh, you know, that's, that's, you know, the, the, way of saying it might not all be true what you see here. Certainly when I've watched some of them on TV, I've thought, God, <laughs> I've been doing this 40 years. I've never had anything like that happen and they get it every week. you know. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, you know, with clockwork, um, what about the use of modern paranormal tools or um, things such as, you know, audio recorders or EMF meters or, you know, FLIR machines? And, um... Well, this
1: is, this is only my opinion, uh, but I'm not particularly pressed with them. We here in the UK now, um, for instance, something like an EMF meter was a standard piece of kit 20 years ago and quite useful piece of kit. But now we're living in a world where everybody's got Wi-Fi. Everybody carries a cell phone. Um, We have, we call it here in the the UK, 3G and 4G. I don't know if you're familiar with those. Yeah, and
0: 5G is right around the corner.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, um, all of these devices have got one thing in common. They all have electronic receivers. And so, you know, when you've got uh, signals coming around from mobile phones, emergency services on, you know, fire engines, police cars, and stuff like that, Unless you're getting um, what I call intelligent uh, feedback, in other words, you're communicating something through a device, uh, You know, how do you know it's just not a rogue radio signal or a cell phone signal or, or anything really? So I sort of, as a matter of rule now, I mean, I've communicated with something last year, I believe, using an EMF meter. And we were getting whatever it was we were talking to. We think it was a young boy to communicate with us. And every sort of it, that went on for a good two minutes. And I think if it's going on and you're getting responses for two minutes plus, you can sort of more or less rule out the possibility that it could just be, you know, a coincidence and a radio signal and sort of thing like that. So yeah, I mean,
0: we live um, in a world where there's microwaves, milliwaves. Yeah. There's um, yeah. all types of you know regular radio waves, TV, and all yeah. types of amazing technological advances floating. Yeah, so
1: air. so I'm I'm very sceptical. I think that they have a place, mm-hmm. but I think you have to be aware that you know we they've all got uh, electronic receivers in, and there's electronic signals flying around more or less everywhere now. Um so you know I'm a little bit skeptical I, I want to see something if it is communicating through that then I'll ask it to do it again and if it does it again I want to see it doing it for 2 minutes plus before I'm thinking well I don't think that that's a, you know coincidental radio signal or cell phone signal etc cetera, etc cetera.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, so what what um kind of inspired you to write um the haunted history of Huntingdonshire Oh, oh or, that's I'm that's sorry a... Shire
1: yeah huntingdonshire hunting, <laughs> you said it right it's huntingdonshire yeah <laughs> uh, when i um when i first sort of had this experience back in 1976 um i wasn't allowed to do any paranormal investigating because i wasn't 18 uh, but they would let me do some research for them and so in those days this is pre internet The research meant going down to the library and and reading through books and checking up facts. You pick up on an uh, on a paranormal investigation, some information about an individual. And then you've got to check out and see if that individual did exist. And can you verify, you know, what you've received? Does it? does it tally with with records etc so they did allow me to do that and i was quite vigilant and very sort of uh, methodical and um as i said my mum's sister marilyn who was married to my uncle trevor kenwood um she kept saying to me oh 25 years i'm going back now she said oh mark you've got to write a book you've got to write a book you know Mm. you keep all this documentation and you're so diligent with it and stuff and you're very skeptical you know you don't so anything that sort of goes bump in the night you consider to be a ghost you know you're very methodical and, and and logical like that so um i kept saying yes yes i'll do it but i was a young man i was playing quite a lot of football and cricket and i had right. two young children and you know writing a book is this particular book is a hundred and eight thousand words and it com- uh, it contains over 300 images and illustrations so um I, I kept saying I would do it. And then Marilyn, uh, God bless her, she passed away about 10 years ago uh, of cancer. Mm-hmm. And we, oh, wow. we had a number of sort of she had no children of her own. And I'm the only child. And so um, I was as close as she had to to kin of her own, you know, children right. of her own. And so um, we sort of had, in the last few months of her life, I sort of more or less promised her that I would write this book, that she'd been going on to me about for 10, 15 years before her death. And um, as I said, I sort of made this promise, and it was a bit like, in the UK, we call it a monkey on our back. I don't know if that...
0: uh, that, no that we use that yeah
1: <laughs> yeah so um i had an operation uh in 2013 and uh, i was quite a serious operation and i couldn't drive for a year and i thought well i'm going to make a start and, and write that book and uh, then i realized that most of my records were in my attic and i couldn't get up in the attic because my leg was in plaster oh, so uh, i sort of actually made a start on it in 2015 and um Some of the records that I'd had in my loft um, had been up there so long that the ink had gone off the paper. You know, these were handwritten before days of computers. And so um, luckily I pressed quite hard with a pen. So if I held it up to the light, I could make out what I'd written. And... um, I set out to write a book on Huntingdonshire's ghosts, myths and legends. And in doing the research, I discovered that there, there was quite a lot of really quirky historical facts. And I'll give you an example. Just up the road from where I'm talking to you now is a little place called Diddington. Very, very small. It's the smallest what we call parish in the whole of Cambridgeshire. Tiny little place, less than 100 people live there. I knew there was a ghost story there that went back to the Second World War and uh, there was an American military hospital there. And this was the second biggest military hospital in the UK. Uh, It had a thousand beds, two operating theatres and even its own cinema. Mm. And so um, I knew I had a ghost story attached to it because my grandfather had told me about it in the, in the late 70s. And um, so as I started doing my research, I, I knew all this stuff that I've just told you. But I found out that Bing Crosby and Bob Hope had performed there. And that sort of just blew me away because it's about a mile from where I'd grown up. And though I knew of the hospital, I didn't know that Bob Hope and uh, Bing Crosby. I mean, yeah, it's like a big.
0: You you should have known that, yeah.
1: (laughs) Yeah, yeah. And of course, you know, I live in a county where Oliver Cromwell was born. Um, Mm -hmm. Henry VIII's first wife, Catherine of Aragon, died within five miles from where I live. She's supposed to haunt the place in my book called Kimbolton Castle. I don't know. We were talking about diaries earlier. Whether you've heard of the, the the famous English diarist Samuel Pepys. Is that a name that's familiar to You know, American-
0: um, the name does sound familiar, but I can't say for sure.
1: Yeah. Well, Pepys is supposed to be the most famous diary of all, diarist of all time. He wrote uh, a diary and kept it from uh, 1660 to 1669. And um, during that time, um, England uh, went to war with the Dutch. Um, and London was in danger of being invaded by the Dutch. Uh, we had the bubonic plague, the Black Death, uh, in 1665-66, and uh, we also had the Great Fire of London the year after. And Pepys was living in London, so we got eyewitness accounts. This, his diaries were so detailed that um, you know, he wrote what he ate, what he drank, where he went, he wrote all about his mistresses and what he got up <laughs> to do with them. It I was, just
0: uh, looked it up, and, you know, it's weird. I've been pronouncing it differently. So it's, yeah, my, um, I used to call it Pepis.
1: Yeah, most people's. it's actually, if you spelt it P-E-E-P-S, that's how it's pronounced.
0: Yeah, um, yeah. they actually have um, on peepsdiary.com. I'll put a link yeah. to that as well. Yeah. Um, you can read his diary. That's, that's yes.
1: Yeah, like I said, he kept the diary for nine years, from 1660 to 1669, and as I said, these very important events in English history happened, the the, the Black Death, the, the bubonic plague, and then the Great Fire of London, and uh, obviously he wrote first-hand accounts of these, so his diaries are of huge interest, plus all his, uh, you know, very personal life as well. <laughs> right,
0: not- gives you the and- insight of um, a regular person, well, a little bit more than a regular person, but... You know, somebody yeah. in everyday life.
1: Now, in my book, Pepys, about five miles from where I live, uh, is a little village called Brampton. And Pepys' um, father's brother, his uncle, lived there. And Pepys spent a great time, a great deal of his time there. And at the very start of this interview, we were talking about Hinchinbrook House. Mm-hmm. Um, the family who lived there were called the Montague family. And they were, were called the Earls of Sandwich And that's where the sandwich that we eat got its name from. Um, John Montague, the fourth Earl of Sandwich, was a a gambler, and he wouldn't leave the gambling table for 24 hours. (laughs) And uh, they said, well, you must eat. He said, well, bring me meat between two slices of bread. And the families were called the Montagues, but their title was the Earl's of Sandwich. And so that that, uh, snack became known as the Sandwich.
0: You, know, that's you seem to have such a um, an appreciation for accurate history that um, I can't help but um, wonder if that was also an inspiration for this book.
1: Well, as I said, originally I set out to – the book has got three things happening with it, Mark, to be honest. I set out to write a book about Huntington's years, Ghosts, Myths and Legends – and I found out through my research that the sort of dividing line between what's a ghost, what's a myth and a legend is very, very fine. And so all you can do is look at history and stuff like that and, and make an informed choice as to whether you believe it's a ghost, whether you believe it's just a myth or a legend or whatever. And then I found out all these interesting historical facts like the ones that I've just shared you. And I thought, hmm, I've got to put them in the book. They're related to the story that I'm writing about, so I can just slip those in as well. And then as a third factor, I thought it'd be quite interesting to spend a night in some of the properties that are featured there. Oh, that's and, interesting. And I did an investigation, a proper controlled paranormal investigation, and I wrote what happened. Now, in some of them, absolutely nothing happened. And so that's what the book says. You know, we spent the night here, was very hopeful that we would experience paranormal activity, but the fact is nothing happened. But in one or two of them, some stuff did happen. And, um, you know, one of them in particular was very interesting because um, my small team that did the investigation uh i was talking about oliver cromwell earlier who you know was involved with the civil war in the uk and uh, in huntingdon uh, which is about, about seven miles from where i am now um which is where oliver cromwell was born there is a museum there and uh, it was actually huntingdon grammar school um and oliver cromwell uh, was educated there and samuel Pepys had some of his ed- education there as well And uh, although Pepys was primarily more London based, obviously he was coming to his uncles. It was like their country retreat in the summer. You know, we would go off to the country and he'd go to Brampton. Um, Yes, we spent the night in that Cromwell Museum, which is a very tiny building and because of the artifacts that are in there, they're priceless. We weren't allowed to be in there on our own, so we had to have a curator from the museum. And so what happened in there was witnessed by somebody who's totally independent. I'd never met the man before we went in and did the investigation. And so that that particular story is, is very interesting, hmm. the Cromwell Museum yeah. in the Huntington chapter.
0: yeah. Well, your book is fascinating. I just looked at the uh, length. It's 545 pages. Um, now, after you you know publish this book, um, do you have anything else in front of you? Any other projects that maybe you um, now have a desire to continue writing about?
1: Well, to be honest, as I said to you, uh, Mark, I didn't write the book for, for commercial reasons. I wrote it because of this promise I'd made to my aunt. So right, I, right. No, I, wasn't, I, wasn't, I didn't ever consider because people sort of say, oh, you're an author. And I said, well, no, I'm really a paranormal investigator. I just you know, happened to write a book about what sort of a hobby of, of mine is. Um, so people are now saying to me, oh, when are you going to write your next book? Um, <laughs>
0: yeah, that's exactly Yeah, People say yeah. as though they get bit by the writing book.
1: Well, I didn't think it would sell, to be quite honest, for two reasons. One, um, it's quite expensive to buy. Uh, If you buy a hard copy, um, I don't know what it is in dollars, but it's £25 here, and that's basically because it's got 300 illustrations in it. And as you probably know, if you know anything about printing, all colour images have to be printed on special photographic-type paper. So the whole book is sort of quite expensive to print. Right. And so I thought, well, no one will ever buy it, and – But, you know, I I just really was going to do it because I'd promised my aunt it. But it seemed to sell. And then obviously putting it on on Kindle uh, on Amazon, um, it was it it sold, you know, quite well. And I think probably the history is as as much as the ghosts is what people tend to. And also the one of the things I think I did did the right thing by putting the photographs in, although that made the book ever so expensive, um, people were saying, Wow, look at this picture of, Kim Bolton Castle, where Catherine of Aragon died and is supposed to haunt. Look at this picture of Hinchinbrook House, you know, where the Earls of Sandwich lived and uh, where yeah, Mark went yeah. to I mean, and... people
0: love that. Um, yes. Also, 25 pounds is about $32, you know, in, right. in the States. And that's, you know, thirty-four ninety-five is usually the average hardcover, you know, decent-sized hardcover book.
1: Well, I, think I don't I've... think it's
0: too far off base.
1: Yeah, I've I've sent about a hundred copies to the USA, um, but because it's such a huge book and it is it's A four in size and uh, as I said it's oh, wow, books. really? So it's it, uh, it's yeah, massive, wow. yeah. So um it's about Eighteen English pounds to ship it to the USA. It's such a big book, yes. so that, that's really why I put it on the Kindle. Because people in America were saying, "Oh, I really want you know get this book." We have a lot of where we live uh, from the, the the sort of Second World War time. We have a lot of American uh, uh, U.S. Air Force bases. Sure, yeah. There's been sort of American citizens living around here from sort of the 1950s. And so, oh, I used to live in – through Facebook, uh, it it got shared, and people were, like, contacting me from all over the USA and saying, oh, I want a copy of your book. How can I get it? I said, well, it's really big. It'll cost a lot of money. But uh, we must have shipped, I think, between 100 and 200 copies to the USA. But obviously the Kindle, if if you're happy with the Kindle, um, personally, from a personal point of view, I think the hard copy is um, – I have a tough time
0: buying – Kindle stuff. I Well, I have a hard time reading on a Kindle or an yeah. iPad. I, I just, I lose interest because, um, I don't know. I just feel like I should be picking up a book. That's how I am.
1: Well, this is a sort of, well, put it this way. Um, if you get a, if I get a box of these books, a box only holds 17 copies and I can just about lift it. <laughs> uh, that gives you an idea how, how yeah. I don't know what the, the weight is of an individual copy off the top of my head, but it's a, it's a heavy old book. You certainly know if you've got a box of 17 in your hands, a man, you know, a, a small woman would not be, be able to lift it. It's, it's a big old book. But, um,
0: well, maybe a soft cover is in the future
1: yeah well it's just, it's not a hard copy it's oh. not a hard copy it is a soft copy because the hard copy if you had a hard copy, it was going to make it even more oh wow. expensive <laughs> yeah, and I said, well, no one will buy this you know I suppose really i'd never written a book before, so i didn't consider myself to be an author, but people seem to like the sort of mixture of ghosts and the history seem to uh, people seem to be attracted to it's wonderful to think for to it to be together. well
0: received you know that's that's a good thing, but I hope, um, I hope that you consider writing another thing because I'm sure there was, there's stuff that you wanted to add to this that kind of, that came to you after the fact.
1: Yeah, there's a few. I mean, I don't think that I would write another book on Huntingdonshire, mm-hmm. um, but I knew Huntingdonshire very intimately. It was where I grew up. So, as I said, I'd been doing this. So when I was sort of very young and I wasn't even driving if there was anything paranormal it had to be local to me. Um so Huntingdonshire is, is a relatively relatively small area. Mm-hmm. Um and um so yeah I, I do go all over the UK now. I go to various places. I went to a place last Saturday um into an old mill uh, that dates back to the Doomsday Book, so you're talking 11th century. Um, the building that's there now is probably um, 16th century, but the the actual site, there's been mills and other buildings there. You know, certainly back to what we call the Doomsday Book in the UK, which is mm. 1056, I think, 11th century. Wow.
0: Um, well, it, it's a fascinating story. Um, you know, it, it seems as though you your book is very well received. Um, I'll put a link to it in the show notes. Um, the haunted history of Huntingdonshire.
1: Yeah, that's correct.
0: And um, Mark, I really appreciate you taking the time to speak with me today. Um, also, I found a website. Um, you have a Weebly.com um, site, is that right?
1: Yeah, yeah. Now that that actually might be a good idea to if you Google the haunted history of Huntingdonshire. I know it's a bit of a mouthful, but if you keep <laughs> If you keep all of the H's in mind, you'll find the website. It's a Weebly website. And a lot of the pictures that uh, appear in the book are on there. And you'll see, you know, these magnificent, you know, English, old English haunted houses. They, um, Some of them are really spectacular. Uh, as I said, Kimbolton Castle is where Henry VIII's first wife, Catherine of Aragon, died. Just up the road from me, two miles, is a place called Buckton Towers, where Catherine of Aragon was kept before she was moved to Kimbolton Castle. Uh, you've got the Cromwell Museum in Huntingdon, where Oliver Cromwell was educated. It was Huntingdon Grammar School. Um, Hinchinbrook House, which appears on the, the front cover of the book, um, which, as I said, goes back a thousand years. So, um, so there's, there's a lot of historical old haunted buildings in there.
0: Well, it looks fascinating, and um, I wish you the best of luck. Um, if you ever want to come back on and talk about this more, or even if you do decide to write something, I'd love to speak to you about it. And, um, yeah,
1: that's fine. Mark, if yeah. people are interested, then, um, you know, I'm happy to, 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 tell people, you know, what I've experienced over the years. Uh, as I said, most people sort of end up saying to me, well, do you believe in ghosts? And, uh, I say, well, I believe in something. I'm not too sure that I, I personally believe from my own experiences, that there is a difference between ghosts and spirits. I Mm. think they're totally different. Um, And most people associate the two as being the
0: same. I think when you sit down with people, they agree with you. I think um, in general, people will immediately knee jerk, say no, there's no such thing. But when you really speak to somebody and you really get into an intimate conversation with them, I I believe that um, deep down we all kind of know that this exists.
1: Yes, as I said, I'm not um, I'm not sure exactly uh, what I believe, but I believe there's certainly something that we don't understand. It's something that uh, you know people witness very regularly and very very credible people here in the UK. Prince Charles, um, you know, is, is on record in the newspapers. Him and his valet um, had a paranormal experience at Sandringham House, which wow. is been in the news lately? So, you know, people like that. They, why would they make that up and, and open themselves to ridicule? Yeah,
0: you know, and, that, and that's exactly what would happen. It would, you know, the yeah. tabloids would grab that and they run with it. Yeah. And, they, and they goof on them. Um, yeah, absolutely.
1: Yeah, so most very many people don't actually, if they do experience, I mean, won't say anything for fear that someone is going to ridicule them and, and you know make fun of them and stuff like that. And also, uh, Mark, there are a lot of people about that do make stuff up because I don't know what their, their reasoning is. They want to attract attention or or whatever reason, but you can normally tell if you're experienced when you interview somebody, um, you know, whether they're telling you the truth or not.
0: I've spoken um, to people and I, who I just personally just don't believe. Yeah. And I will just <laughs> I slip to- in there saying, yeah. well, I don't know. It, it's kind of, An unbelievable story that you're telling, and I could tell the person gets a little nasty. Yeah, yeah. And I haven't released some interviews with people just because of that very reason. It's when somebody, you know, can't take my criticism, and I'm not really even really I'm not I'm not attacking anybody, and I'm not calling anybody a liar. But when somebody's telling me these sensational stories and it's like you gotta be, you know, you have to accept the fact that people are going to question you at least a little.
1: As a paranormal investigator, when somebody tells you that they've got an issue going on at the house and would you come around and have a look? The first thing I do is interview them. Mm. And yeah. then while I'm interviewing them, I'm sort of analyzing them as a person and thinking, have you got any financial reasons for wanting this to be going on in your house? For instance, you'll find that English pubs, English hotels, they love a ghost because it brings custom. So, you know, they're going to tell you all sorts of stuff uh, that's going on or or you get to a person and, you know, are you I can see you're really enjoying telling me this as if, you know, you're getting gratification from that. You're telling me something that I don't know. And it's something that's absolutely bizarre. And, you know, I'm wondering, do I really believe you, you know, and you can normally catch them out by asking various questions. As I said to you, you know, in 40 years of doing this, I've seen one full-bodied apparition i've been on investigations where other people that are credible and i believe have seen apparitions but i personally have only seen the one so when i go and see somebody who runs a pub and he says oh you know i have dick turpin who's a, a highwayman here in england he comes in on a wednesday night and then on friday nights i have oliver cromwell and so i think god you, you're not you're not telling me the truth <laughs> right <laughs> you know.
0: i beware all the people who have all the answers <laughs>
1: Yes. Like I said to you uh, earlier in this interview, there are no experts in this field. And uh, once you start thinking that you are an expert and you can't be learning new things, uh, then really that's time to pack in, in in my opinion. The most
0: brilliant men in history would never, ever refer to themselves as the most brilliant men in history. (laughs) (laughs) There's always room to
1: learn. (laughs) I've done a number of talks and people said, oh, we've got, you know, ghost expert, I said, hold on, I'm not a ghost expert, uh, there's no experts, um, you know, we're learning, um, I can't tell you everything, an expert knows everything, you know, or near enough everything about the subject, and mm-hmm. although I've been doing it a long time and I consider myself to be very experienced, I'm not an expert.
0: <laughs> well, I really enjoyed speaking with you about your experiences in your book, Um Mark, if you ever want to come back on the door's wide open.
1: Absolutely mark if uh, if you want me to to talk again, um, i I'll, I'll be quite happy to.